0: This evening's New Testament reading is from 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 4 through 12. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word that sustains our hearts, sustains our faith. And we come to you now as people in need of your grace for us. And we pray that you would open up our minds and our hearts, that we might not just hear, but believe. And by believing, that we would apply your word into our life, so that we, through our ordinary, everyday events, may declare your grace and your mercy right here in this city. In Christ's name, amen. amen. I don't know about you, but. Uh, I tend to be uh, someone who's always looking forward. And I know some of us, we look backwards, we dwell in the past and all that. Or some of us, we dwell in the present. And some of us, like me, we're always looking ahead to what's next. And, uh, you know, every time we have an extended conversation, I ask Glenn, Glenn, what are you going to do when you retire? And he's like, I have no idea. Why are you asking me this? Well, I do it because I'm always thinking about the next steps. And although I have just turned 41 not too long ago, retirement seems just around the corner. And I want to be prepared when it comes because you only get to retire once, right? Like you don't get to do it again. So I don't want to be caught off guard and asking for a redo on this. I want to be prepared. So anytime I get a chance to read up on anything in retirement or what the folks at that stage of life are doing, I am all ears. And I ran into this article recently published by New York Times not too long ago, entitled, Retirees Find Meaning Serving the Needs of Their Communities. And according to the article in 2013, some 24% of older adults in their legacy or mission phase volunteered nearly 190 million hours of service. Examples include a former accountant. Do we have any accountants in the house? Oh, it's all right. It's like, ooh. uh, A former accountant starting a nonprofit organization working with at-risk youth in her hometown. Former Hollywood movie and TV producer initiating media arts in the public schools designed to teach film technology, music, and entrepreneurship. And a former lawyer, I know we got some of those, right? Former lawyer starting an organization to bridge the disconnect between health providers and the underserved Latino community in Orlando, Florida. And the author concludes that article by saying this, these people exemplify those who have gone beyond a second career and retirement into a calling to aid others and serve a community. That word calling caught my attention. And I realize that even the secular world longs for something greater than a paycheck or even promotion. They yearn for transcendence, and it's evident in the way they use the term calling, that somehow our calling is different from our everyday work. There I say it's even more sacred. And the research proves this. According to psychologists who work in the field of work orientation, basically how one approaches work, Individuals with a calling orientation, those who view their employment as a calling, see their work as more important than collecting a paycheck or advancing to the top. Instead, they view their work as integral to their lives and to their identity and experience the highest level of job satisfaction and meaning in employment as compared to those individuals who see their work as a job or even as a career. The question could be asked, where does a sense of transcendence come from? And I would argue that it's our longing ultimately for God. The Bible says God put eternity in our hearts. And so even though we go about busying ourselves with the everyday normal life, there is a sense in our hearts that there is something deeper or greater, and we yearn for that. And I think C.S. Lewis, in so many words, said that our longing for good, true, and beautiful reflect a deeper longing for the one who created what is good, true, and beautiful. And as people separated from God by sin, we carry with us an unmet yearning for God. But Jesus shows up and what the Old Testament laws could not do. Jesus does, and he meets that very longing by inviting us into a relationship with him. And he does that by first coming down from heaven, laying aside the glory, taking on human flesh, living a perfect life, and dying in our place so that we might understand God's heart to have a relationship with us. And it's in that context of relationship we begin to understand that this is who we really are. And this is what we have been created for. And we find our humanity and our glory in our relationship with Christ. And as we begin to understand and grow in this, we then long for others to see it. And that's where service comes in. We want to take what we have experienced in our relationship with God and the grace that has been shown to us, and we want to demonstrate that to others by serving them, by modeling what that looks like, what Christ looks like in this world. And for the last several weeks, we have been going through a series called Being Renewed Day by Day, and today we wrap up that series by talking about renewed service. And For those of you who have been with us for some time, you know that renewed service is not simply something we work to do only, but it really is a response to God's amazing grace that we just talked about, that he came to first serve us, and in response to that, we give ourselves in service to others. Theologian Karl Barth has a great definition uh, on service. Worth noting, and I'll read it for us. He says, service is a willing, working, and doing in which a person does not act according to his own purposes or plans, but with a view to the purpose of another person and according to the need, disposition, and direction of another. He goes on to say, it is an act whose freedom is limited and determined by the other's freedom. I really like that. It's an act whose freedom is limited and determined by the other's freedom, an act whose glory, increase, uh, whose glory increasingly becomes greater to the extent that the doer is not concerned about his glory, but about the glory of the other. And I think what Karl Barth is simply saying is this. Service is taking on the cost of limiting ourselves our freedom, in order that we will seek the glory of the other individual. And that's exactly what Christ has done for us. And we are then called to do likewise. So we want to ask this question, how does the gospel shape our service? And we'll look at that together in our time. First, the gospel gives us security. The gospel gives us security. Let's read verse 9 again. It says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. These words were first spoken to Israel in Exodus chapter 19 on the heels of crossing the Red Sea. And I have to believe that the original audience in Exodus 19 were overwhelmed and even perhaps confused and more so embarrassed because they were slaves. They weren't royalty. They weren't chosen. They weren't precious in any way. They were slaves. Yet God calls them his special possession, chosen, royal, and holy it's so grand that they can't even begin to wrap their heads around these words that are being spoken over them. And I imagine that these words had a profound impact on Apostle Peter's original audience as well. According to chapter 1, these Christians were exiles. They were refugees scattered throughout Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, because of religious persecution. And I understand Those of us here in Washington, we have read and heard a lot about Syrian refugee crisis. And I understand it's a complex situation with no simple answers. That it requires much wisdom and caution. But there seems to be a clear biblical mandate to care for the foreigners and the aliens in our midst. And Jesus, I think, pushes that even further. And he says, we ought to love even our enemies. Let's go back to the text. And to this community, the refugees struggling just to survive another day. God comes and meets them where they are and and gives them a word that is more powerful than their fear their uncertainty and their anxiety and breeds new hope and life into where they are. And he does that by reminding them that they are not rejected, but they're chosen and precious because Christ was rejected on their behalf. That they are not despised, but privileged royalty because Christ was despised by his own and that they are not exiles in a foreign land, but a holy nation because Christ was exiled and crucified beyond the city walls. And Peter adds even more words of life onto this. He goes on to say that their identity in Christ is secure, that they are sons and daughters of God, that their future is secure. They have been delivered from kingdom of darkness to kingdom of light, and that will never change, that their inheritance awaits them, inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, is kept in heaven for them, and their hope is secure. Jesus had defeated sin and death And this is the reality that they're called to live in. Even though they're tempted to abandon all of that because of what they feel so keenly as they seek to live every day in a foreign land, God reminds them that there's a greater reality at work that is anchored by His promise for them. And so often I think we as people of God living here in this city Working our way through the messiness of life and the relationship with coworkers, roommates, our family members. We need to often lift up our heads and remind ourselves of the promises that God has given to us. That he is still on the throne and that his plan to do good and not harm is still true. And we need to daily preach this to ourselves because so often, even the gospel message that we sing about, we pray about, becomes so foreign because we get so tied down to the various responsibilities that demand our time and our our attention. You see, understanding our identity as sons and daughters of God is the only thing that can loosen our grip on the things that we so tightly hold on to. My two boys, James and Daniel, they're four and two years old. They fight all the time. I think this is their calling in life, at least for now. Their call to fight and to make life miserable for each other and for everybody else. They fight over toys, over toys, and more toys. And you know when I watch them fight over Legos, I get it because Legos are cool. You know, you put them together, and voila, these bricks become like a dinosaur, a spaceship, a gun, something, right? It's like, ooh, that's pretty cool. And I get that they that they uh, fight over cars because they're cool. Cars are cool, you know. They can go at various speeds, up and down various terrains, and you crash them, and it makes this like cool noise, like pfft, I don't know. I get that, but. I draw the line when they fight over cardboard box. I'm like, really, cardboard box? You're fighting over trash. And the only reason why you want it is because he's got it. You don't even know what to do with it. But they fight, and they're at each other's throats. I mean, it's it's like MMA all over again, you know? But every once in a while, they fight over food. And this is where it gets interesting. They play this endless game of tug of war, trying to pry out of the other's hand that pizza pretzel that they got, right? And, and I tell them, I, I use logic. I even, I even use theology. You know, I'm like, look, you are to love one another as Christ loved you. You shouldn't be fighting. And the more you reach for the pretzel in the other's hand. It's going to break. And then at the end, no one gets a pretzel. But that sort of logic just doesn't compute. They fight, they fight, they fight. And the only thing that seems to work is when I bring out a big bag of pretzels, okay, and say, look, I have more pretzels than you could ever eat I will give you all of this if you would stop fighting. And somehow, that makes sense to them. That big bag of pretzel communicates to them the abundance of grace that they have as sons. And I look at that played out and I'm like, that is the gospel message. So often, we function like orphans, that somehow our God is not gracious. And even if he is, that he doesn't have enough for all of us. And so we grab and we hold on so tightly to the things that give us meaning, value, and identity, and we don't want to let go. And God is saying, are you, are you kidding me? I have everything you could ever imagine. If you could only see with your eyes of faith, And he says, Look up. Look up to the promises that I have made, which are all yes and amen in Christ. And learn to hold on to these things with an open hand. You see, when we forget that we are his children and we operate with an orphan mentality, self-preservation becomes priority number one. And when we function as such, service becomes twisted. So it's no longer about seeking the glory of another, but it's really abandoning our own glory. You see, our identity as human beings made in the image of God and our glory, which is to reflect him in the things that we do, they sort of get swept away when we, instead of trusting in God's grace for us, we begin to hoard for ourselves. You see this in people who keep score with things like money, fame, and power. And we all keep score, by the way with physical beauty, number of children, size of our house, the list goes on. We all keep score. And if God is out of the picture and the only reality is the things we possess, then people become objects for our personal gain. Or they become obstacles to overcome in order for us to gain something from those that have something to give to us. But the problem with this approach is that these things, be it money, fame, power, can never give us the security that Christ offers us. Christ is the cornerstone, the unshakable cornerstone And we are like living stones being built on top of it, Peter says. And that's where we find our security. It is not because we have earned our place there, but it's because he has simply invited us graciously to be a part of what he is doing. And in the process, we realize that we are his sons, his daughters. We belong to him and everything we could imagine or want is found in him. Anyone watch the TV show Hoarding, Buried Alive? Anyone? I've seen like few episodes of that and it is scary. You see people buried waist deep in trash and you begin to wonder like how, how do you end up like that? Because I'm sure none of them, you know, as they were graduating kindergarten said, one day I want to be a hoarder. You know, that's my goal in life. I want to amass as much trash as I can so that I could beat everybody else. No, how does that happen? The psychology behind this addiction, and there are many components to it, uh, is a fear of losing something. Somehow, these things give them their identity and meaning and value. And I thought, wow, that's true of all of us, isn't it? We are all hoarders. And again, the only thing that could free us from all of that, to serve and to give generously in a way that he has for us, is the gospel. You know, I want to read to you this one verse that I find myself going back to often. Times when I lose sight of his generosity, his grace, his kindness for me. In Romans 8, verse 28, this is what Paul says. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? I don't know about you, but I need to remind myself of this truth regularly. And it's really the only thing that could free me which leads us then to our second point. Not only does the gospel provide security as children, but it provides us freedom. It could be argued that there aren't too many things more American than freedom. Perhaps baseball or football, but freedom is definitely one of the top five things on that list. And we love our freedom, don't we? Freedom to do whatever whenever, however we want, without constraints and coercion. But we all know that that kind of freedom is not freedom at all. It is actually bondage. Bondage to the impulse of our desires. Biblical freedom, as Augustine once said, is being what you are meant to be. Biblical freedom is being what you are meant to be. So exercising freedom Living in freedom means moving toward the image of God which was twisted and warped in the garden by sin. Remember what happened way back in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve desired to be like God. The serpents question, did God really say this and that, undermined God's goodness and eroded their trust in him? And after they ate the forbidden fruit, their eyes were indeed open as the serpent promised. And they gained wisdom as the serpent promised. What did they learn? What did they figure about life, about themselves, about God, the universe? Well, they learned that they were naked. What a disappointment. But ever since the garden We have been, in the name of freedom, moving further away from the image of God. And Christ, out of his grace, comes to our rescue. He comes to free us by defeating sin and death and undoing the shackles of sin, allowing us then to be able to walk in freedom. And Apostle Paul says in Galatians 5, 13, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Do not use your freedom to indulge in flesh. Rather, he says, serve one another humbly in love. To serve one another humbly in love is a privileged work. It's not easy, but it's a privileged work nonetheless. And in the process, we begin to understand what it means to make the cross The central theme in our relationships, Richard Foster, a pastor and author, wrote this. He said, in service, we experience many little deaths of going beyond ourselves. It's the call to deny ourselves and to take up the cross. And every act of service requires, in varying degrees, denying ourselves and taking up the cross. Giving focused attention to my children means that tomorrow's work is only piling up. And for us to actually pause and ask the question, how are you doing with a willingness to listen and to be fully present means that we might compromise our personal time. When we love and when we engage people in service like this, it always means that we have to take on the cost. There is no such thing as loving someone without really giving ourselves in a costly way. But every time we do that, God takes our acts of service and obedience and uses it beyond what we intended. You see, when we serve sacrificially, we reflect Christ. a servant who humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. And God holds before the world the image of this glory of Christ who gave uh, gave himself for us. And it's that very image that the people are drawn to. That's why Apostle Paul said in Colossians 1.24 that we as a people of God are called then to fill up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. and What does he mean by that? He means that we ought to fill up in our own body as we love and serve others the demonstrative work of the cross which we as a church are called to. To borrow Martin Luther, the great reformer's words, and I will interject service in place of work here, and say service is the mask of God behind which he wants to remain concealed and do all things. It is through our service that God advances his kingdom cause. It's through our acts of service that he pictures his humble, his loving, his sacrificial heart to the people who are wondering, who is Jesus? And this is what the first century Christians did so well. They served well, even at great cost to themselves. You can read all the church history books and realize that it wasn't the apostles or even the inner core that took the gospel to the ends of the earth. It was in fact the nameless people, the merchants selling things on the streets, day laborers who were working on the field that really advanced the gospel. It was them who took the gospel and lived it out in a sacrificial way that was so winsome and attractive to the people in that world. And we are all then called to reflect the glorious image of Christ through our service. And this is not reserved only for those in position of power and privilege, but even for those of us who would consider ourselves minorities. These believers in first century, living as foreigners and refugees, were socially marginalized, religiously persecuted, and politically powerless. But rather than growing bitter or wallowing in their pain, they served. And the world saw what was going on and they were bewildered. And let me say, as we wrap up, just one thing, that we as recipients of God's grace, we must be a serving community. Remember all the things that we talked about, the grace of God, and how that shapes our service by giving us our identity in Christ, but also freedom from the bondage of things that we so hold on to. And that service begins right here, to one another in this community. Paul, again, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10 said, said, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. We often think about service as something we do to the city, and we certainly need to do that. And we think of service often as something we do out there, in different parts of the world, and we also need to do that. But it's got to be modeled here first. If we are overlooking the people that God has brought to this community, because they're different and it's difficult, and we're looking for people who we can sort of say, well, they need me. We've missed the whole point we got to model and demonstrate the gospel to one another in this community first. And some of you may think, well, isn't that kind of selfish? Like, the world needs us more than us. No, it's got to—our health, okay, makes a big difference in our service to others. Now, if you've flown, you understand this, right? They say, when the oxygen mask drops, what are you supposed to do? You put it on yourself first. Why? because a passed out you is not very helpful, okay? That's why they say put it on yourself first and help those who are helpless like your husbands. (laughs) I've heard that so many times. I don't know why they they give us such a hard time. Like, I think we know how to put that thing on, right, men? Right? But Look, we as a body of Christ, we need to serve one another. We need to love one another here. And it begins with, hi, my name is. And as we enter into one another's life, walk along with them, we begin to see the ways that we can help and serve. If you are waiting for someone to, hi, I need help, you're going to miss a lot of opportunities to seek the glory in that person. And by doing so, you you grow, okay? So if you're not serving in this community for whatever reasons, and I know we, we play that card. Oh, it's a difficult season in life, and I get that. Look, I have four kids, and if I could... Oh, man, this, this week, we, we had bouts of diarrhea. I know, it's yeah. TMI. And then after that, we had little insects crawling in our heads. I mean, it was... It was rough, okay? It was rough. I get it. But even then, the call to serve and love people well, I think it stands. And we need to be creative in ways of figuring out how we're going to do that. So regardless of what stage of life you're in, I want to encourage you to jump in and rather than waiting for someone to say, would you please? I want you to take the initiative to serve. And this is something you don't have to pray about. Okay? I want to I mean, I need to pray about this. Look, there are some things that we don't have to pray about. It's been mandated, it's clear right there in the scripture. I mean, you don't pray about if we're gonna breathe that day, right? You wake up, Lord, do you want me to breathe? No, we don't do that. Why? Because it's who we are. It's what we're called to do. It's part of our humanity. And likewise, we, we need to serve. And I know a lot of people say, man, I wanna be blessed. I I wanna grow. I wanna experience God in a deeper way. I would say, serve. It's one thing to float theology around up here. But when you take that down to the weeds and you get involved in the messiness of relationship in this community and serving the city together, that's when you're going to experience God's grace and mercy and enablement in ways that you are not going to able to by simply memorizing theology. So whether you are busy working 60-plus hours a week, parents feeling like they're drowning with the responsibilities you have with kids, or even, can I say, preteens, those of you in third, fourth, fifth, sixth grade and up, don't wait until you get older, wiser, with more experience to serve. God has gifted you to serve. And you may be wondering, how? Right? You're like a third grader. and You're like, how? I get that you don't have a whole lot to give. But your passion for life encourages us. I was at a retreat just until this morning. And last night at a bonfire, I saw a bunch of kids coming around roasting marshmallows and enjoying life. And that rebuked me. How often do I look at something like bonfire and marshmallows and say, eh, been there, done that. And I grow callous to these things that God gives as blessings, as gifts. And watching the little kids celebrate that, I thought, wow, I need to learn. I need to be grateful and celebrate the gifts that God has given and never grow old to them. So I want to encourage you, even the younger ones. Where are you? I can't see you. To serve, to get plugged in and play your part in this community. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you so much for your love for each and every one of us and the extent to which you went to serve us well. Lord, you laid aside the glories of heaven And you went all the way to the cross. And by doing so, you served us. And you have sought our good. And for that, we give you thanks. And we ask that that gospel message will move our hearts to serve others well. In Christ's name, amen.